Now, we're working our way through the book of Galatians, and I ask that you turn now to the third chapter, and we're going to focus only on the first five verses. Now, as you're turning there, let me remind you that last week, last time, uh, we looked in chapter two at some of the... um, some of the most important verses in the book of Galatians. Uh, For example, we saw the very first time that the Apostle Paul uses the term justified. It's in verse 16, chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no flesh, no one, will be justified. Now, really, that's the core of the book of Galatians. That's the hinge verse, if you will. That's what it really is all about. And also in verses 19 and following, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So this great theme of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. This is the doctrine that is the standing or falling doctrine of the church. And as we said also last time, the standing or falling doctrine of the soul. This is the doctrine that if I, as your pastor, wake you up at 3 a.m., I want you to be able to say, oh, yes, I can answer the question, what is justification? I know what it is. I can tell you because it's so crucial to your Christian living. Now we come to the third chapter, and the core of the third chapter actually comes in verses 10 through 13, 10 through 14. We won't get that far tonight. We're only going to begin by looking at the first five verses this evening. Let's briefly pray. Our gracious God, as we look at these verses and prepare the way for those incredibly important verses that are to come that define for us the gospel in such crucial ways, we pray that also tonight in these verses that introduce the theme, we will see Christ and Him crucified, and that our hearts will be melted and that we will be filled with this wonder of what it means that Christ is our Redeemer and Savior. But Father, to remember that whether or not our hearts are always melted when we hear these things, and oh, how we wish they were. Nonetheless, there is an objective peace that has been purchased for us sinners through the cross that does not depend upon our feelings, but depends upon what he did. Hear our prayer that we may understand these things more deeply and significantly. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, Galatians 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, people of God, as we come to these passages and enter into the logic of what he's going to unpack for us in this third chapter, 
I think that it's essential that we remember that it is way down deep in the heart of every fallen human being, every child of Adam, that we are self-dependent and self-righteous, that we do not need the mercy and grace of God, that we are fine on our own, that our works are adequate. I've never yet met a man, met a man or a woman, no matter how degraded their life may be, that when I talk with them about the gospel and they are far from Christ, that didn't talk with me in one way or another about their own works and about their own acceptance with God by those works. That is just way, way down deep in the human heart. There is a Pharisee in the heart of every human being. Now we Christians have come to know Christ. We are justified not by what we do, but what Christ has done. We have received the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are clothed in His perfection. His perfect record now belongs to us, and that's true. And yet it's also true that our hearts, because we are not yet fully sanctified, want sometimes to go back to those old, dark ways of thinking. And we become involved in our minds every week, undoubtedly, in one way or another, even believers in Jesus, in one way or another, become involved in thinking that our works somehow, somehow, are satisfactory that we fall back upon our performance or we fall back upon what we do. And let me remind you that undoubtedly that's one reason that God has ordained the proclamation of the gospel to his people week after week after week after week as we continue this until we die or until Christ comes again because we get confused and jumbled up inside about this matter of works and grace. And we need to hear once again every week that God is a gracious God to us in Christ. So Christians can forget grace quickly, and we see how quickly they can forget grace by simply remembering that that's what's happening to these Christians in the churches of Galatia. Paul had founded these churches, you will remember, and it had not been long ago. And they were very quickly deserting the gospel that he preached to them, chapter 1, verse 6 tells us. And they were now accepting a false gospel of the Judaizing party, a gospel which Paul says is no gospel at all. Don't think that... Because you have heard the gospel, it's not possible for you to become confused about this matter. The Galatians heard it from Paul, the apostle himself, and became confused very, very quickly. And that's why he's coming to them again. And he's unpacking the gospel. And he's preaching to them, once again, the cross. Now let's look at three things here in this text. First, to forget the cross of Christ is foolish. To forget the cross is utterly foolish. You see how he begins in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, he's telling us here that the cross was preached. He is reminding them of the time in which he came in their midst and he preached the gospel. He proclaimed Christ to them. And the word that's used here, proegraphe, means to placard. That is to say, to set forth publicly. We might even say that Christ was billboarded before their very eyes as crucified. What a wondrous thing. Paul the Apostle, with all of his deep and rich knowledge of what the atoning work of Jesus is all about, came to this church and he preached to them not works but grace. Not self-righteousness but the righteousness of Christ. He preached to them the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ was placarded before them every time the gospel of Jesus is preached. It is as if before the eyes of those to whom the gospel comes, Jesus Christ is placed before us as a crucified Savior. 
in whom we are called to put our trust and to continue to put our trust by the grace of God. Well, that's what Paul did. He preached the gospel of Christ. There's this wonderful painting of Martin Luther that I've often admired from the Reformation period in which you see Luther in his pulpit preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and you see the congregation here and the painter has placed a crucified Christ in between. You see the point. What he's saying is Luther preached to his people Christ and him crucified And this Savior was placarded before his congregation as he preached the gospel. Now that's my calling. That's Jeff's calling. That is what we long to do. We preach Christ and him crucified. We do not preach ourselves. Every time we go into this pulpit, we want to uplift Christ. We want to place Jesus before your very eyes. For you are saved only by what he has done and what he achieved when he shed his blood on the cross. And so Paul says, look, the cross was preached. It was placarded. You could see Christ, you could see his wounds, his his bleeding, his atonement that was all for you in order that you might be redeemed from your awful sins. And the cross meant what when Paul preached? When he preached, the cross meant what? What did the cross mean? Now this is an extremely important question. I say that it's an important question not only for them then and there, but for us here and now. You know, there have been various theories of the atonement throughout the history of the church, and some of them are truly awful. Some of them indeed are far off the mark. For example, there is this view sometimes called the governmental theory of the atonement. You know what that means? It means that Christ went to the cross, and there we see the moral government of God, but it didn't in any way affect the removal of our guilt. It simply warms our hearts to Jesus. Sometimes also connected with that is the moral influence view of the atonement. That means that when Jesus, when we see Jesus on a cross, that it simply melts our hearts. And when we are moved from within, then we begin to change. Now I ask you, you Christian, when you see the cross, when you think about the shed blood of Jesus, it does change you, doesn't it? It does move your heart, doesn't it? But that's not the meaning of the cross. Yes, that's an effect of the cross, but that's not the meaning of the cross. The meaning of the cross is first and foremost that it was Godward, that in order that we might be reconciled to God, redeemed from our sins, that our guilt be removed, we needed a Savior who objectively on the cross actually satisfied the divine wrath and anger of God. Paul calls him a propitiation through faith in his blood in Romans chapter 3. That's the great and grand thing that Jesus did when he went to the cross. You know... Even though he says here that Christ is placed before their eyes as crucified. Even though Christ is placed before your eyes as crucified so that you and I may put our faith in him and trust in him. Do you know what is first and foremost and what is more important even than that? What is first is that he was put, Jesus was put before the gaze of his heavenly father, your heavenly father before the gaze of a God who is holy, before the gaze of a God who is righteous, who sent his own son into the world, that he might remove that guilt and take away our sin and satisfy the divine wrath. The boiling mud showers of divine anger was poured out upon the Son of God so that Jesus might bring together God and man and reconcile us. And so the cross was crucified, the cross was preached, Christ crucified was proclaimed, 
And the cross means, first of all, that God sees in Jesus the removal of his own divine wrath. So that when it is proclaimed to you, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you may know that your guilt is removed. Now the problem here is that the cross is being replaced by works in the thinking of these people who originally heard from Paul the Apostle the grace of God through the cross. They are magnifying circumcision. They are magnifying holy days. They are magnifying the law of Moses. They're saying that, yes, what Paul preached was true, but we need to supplement it in some ways. We must supplement the cross. Oh, my friend, always be careful whenever you hear anyone say that the cross in some way must be added to or supplemented. No, no, no. They're magnifying these things and being, and they're replacing the cross by their works. And this produces inevitably, over time, it produces a theology of doubt. Because we begin to look at what we do. We begin to look at the supplement rather than to the cross. And it produces a theology of, of, of introspection and a theology that leads us, leads us to total defeat. It leads us actually ultimately to a doctrine that teaches that salvation is not secure. And we can't have any assurance of our salvation. When I was a boy, I still remember those days. I was preaching any and everywhere I could. Uh, I was allowed to preach in settings in which I shouldn't have been allowed to preach because of my age, but hopefully in the providence of God, uh, he used that uh, for my growth. But I remember a little church that asked me to come and speak, and I came and I opened the gospel and preached it as well as I possibly could. I must have been 14 years old. And I recall that after preaching the gospel as well as I could, Uh, And I preached then what I was preaching now insofar as I understood it, the cross, uh, the wonder of grace, the the faith that we have in Christ, the the security of the believer, all of these wondrous things as well as I possibly could. I remember that one of the leaders of the church took me aside afterward. He took me in a room and he locked the door. Just the two of us. He locked the door. There I was. Little fellow, this big guy. I was 14 or so years old. He was probably in his 60s. He locked the door. He said, young man, I need to let you know you're not preaching correctly. A person can lose his salvation. A person can be truly regenerated and lose his regeneration. He can be truly saved and he can fall again into sin that will, that will mean that he is guilty before God. And I said, sir, you will never hear me preach a rickety gospel like that. You will never hear me preach a rickety gospel that once a person is saved that he can lose his salvation. Well, by the grace of God, I've never removed myself from that promise, and I continue to preach what Paul the Apostle did, free grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, these people, in mingling their works with Paul's message of grace, are forgetting the message of grace altogether, and they are trivializing the cross of Jesus, trivializing the cross. And that's what Paul means when he begins by saying, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly publicly portrayed as crucified. He is saying to replace the cross with your works is absolutely foolish. And he actually in the Greek uses evocative, which some translations don't keep, but your ESV does. It means he's addressing them like this. Oh, foolish Galatians. He is crying out before them in his exasperation. The Apostle Paul is passionate. Oh, how foolish you are. 
that you would forget this crucified Lord, the cross of Christ, and all that it means. It's foolish, is it not, to exchange grace for works? It is foolish to exchange freedom in Christ for bondage? It is foolish to exchange the infinite merit of Jesus falling back upon my infinite demerit because I have no merit. And it is foolish to exchange clear-headedness for bewitchment. Now, Paul uses that language here, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And it's metaphorical, of course, but that's the word that was used in the ancient world for someone who casts a spell, the evil eye. And he's saying, it's as if a spell has been cast over you. I can't get it, says Paul. I preach grace to you. I preach the cross to you. And it's as if somebody's cast a spell over you. It's as if you were bewitched. J.B. Lightfoot in his classic commentary says, This placard ought to have kept their eyes from wandering and so to have acted as a charm against all Judaic sorceries. Isn't that beautifully put? Now that's what we're called to tonight. We are called as believers in Jesus to keep our gaze so on the cross of Christ that whatever sorcery comes our way, whatever would come to cast a spell over us and and lead us away from Christ and his gospel, that this placarded Jesus on a cross would remove that spell. That as we keep our gaze on him, it's not possible that we fall under the bewitchment of works righteousness and those things that lead away from Jesus. And so Paul in the beginning is saying, see the flowing blood of Christ, keep your gaze there, See the flowing blood of Jesus. See the atoning work of the cross. See him who propitiated. See him who expiated. See him who redeemed. See him who reconciled through his own blood. You keep your gaze there and you'll be fine. You'll be recovered. But if you take your eyes off of that, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to see things wrongly and you're going to be altogether confused. Now that's the first thing. To forget the cross is foolish. Now I want to make a second point from the text. The cross defines Christian experience. Now that just makes sense, doesn't it? Paul the Apostle has focused on his own experience in the chapters that we've looked at previously. And now in chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 5, he turns to the experience of the people to whom he preached the gospel in Galatia. And he says, the work of the Holy Spirit, that's what was operative when I preached the gospel, and the work of the Holy Spirit points to grace and not law. And it only makes sense that he will address them in terms of their own experience because the cross, the cross so revolutionizes our way of thinking and our way of living that all of our experience is now defined by Jesus and his cross rather than by ourselves and by the law. That was his point there in chapter 2 verse 20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying I have a completely new way of living, a completely new way of of seeing life because the cross is now at the center and in the core. And so he turns to this issue of the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at these verses again, beginning in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Now he has a series of questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law 
or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And so it's a constant emphasis here upon this cross that has been preached and the work of the Holy Spirit now in the lives of true believers. And this is what he says. First, the Holy Spirit, not law. The Holy Spirit, not law. When I preached to you, the Holy Spirit was operative, not law. That's the point in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? In other words, did law and circumcision and keeping special days in order that you might be accepted by God and living by the law of Moses, did law create this living reality of the Christian life? Did law create this new way of seeing things? Did law create this this wondrous understanding that your guilt is removed? Did law remove from your hearts and from your, from your lives that old way of sinking down deep into your own sin and your own, your own works? No, no, the law didn't do that. The Holy Spirit did that. And if you would remember this, then you would not have fallen into the false teaching of the Judaizers. If you would remember this, all would be well. And then he says, the Holy Spirit enables faith, not flesh. The Holy Spirit enables faith not flesh. Again, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? Christian life begins, continues, and ends by faith. You know what faith means? It's fiducia. It's trust. It's reliance upon Christ. The Christian life continues and ends by faith alone because faith is God's gift And because faith is not a work, but faith is an instrument of receptivity. It only receives, it adds nothing. It produces nothing. Faith does not work. It only receives Christ and what Christ has done for us. And then he says the Holy Spirit enables faith and not performance. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. And so he says, not the old order, the sinful human nature and all that came with the old order. That's what he means by the flesh. But he is saying, you're brought to a conclusion in your Christian life. You are being perfected. You are being brought to the end point of your Christian life, not by flesh, not by law, not by works, but by the grace of God. And if a person does not enter by faith into Christ Jesus and what he has done on the cross and continue to live in that way, then his end will be disastrous. Notice he talks about the end here. You noticed that, didn't you? He talks about that very clearly. Are you being perfected by the flesh? Are you ending by the flesh? Luther talked about a Dr. Krauss a man who was a minister of the gospel who seemed for a while to have a good understanding of what the gospel was all about. And yet he became confused and darkened in his mind. And he began to think that Christ, rather than being pro-me, for me, was against him. And he was lost in his concern that Christ was not for him, but against him. And Dr. Krauss did not end well. Dr. Krauss took his own life. And Luther said, oh, poor Dr. Krauss. 
had he only understood that Christ is for us and not against us. If Dr. Krauss had only understood the cross. Well, that's his point here. The Holy Spirit enables faith, not performance. And Dr. Krauss fell into living by his own performance. And then he says the Holy Spirit enables fruitful Christian experience. There's an interpretive question here in verse 4. Look at it. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now the word pasco that is used here, the verb, can mean to suffer. And our ESV translators have chosen to translate it that way. But it also can mean, more positively, just to experience things in life. Your experience, whatever that experience may be. And so we would read it, did you experience so many things in vain? if indeed it was vain. And it makes sense here actually to translate the the passage, did you experience so many things in vain? Because he goes on and he talks about their experience. The supplies of the Spirit to you in verse 5. The miracles that were done, not by works of the law, but by the hearing with faith. And so the Holy Spirit enables fruitful Christian experience. Have you had such remarkable experiences by the law? Have you had such remarkable experiences by your works? No, no, no. You've had these remarkable experiences in your Christian life all together by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the issue in these verses is this. The cross opposes law. The Holy Spirit enables a new interpretation of life. And that new interpretation of life is altogether grace-filled, completely grace-bathed. Completely grace, grace covered. For example, I was talking with an older gentleman just recently, and this older gentleman has very bad health, and the idea that he's come to, the conclusion he's come to, a professing Christian is, God must be against me. God is somehow condemning me because of this ill health that I have. I've come across that many, many times as I work as a minister of the gospel. He's fallen into works, not grace. He's forgotten that his Christian experience is determined by the Holy Spirit and by faith, not by works. He's forgotten that God is for him and not against him. He has forgotten that whatever his experiences in life are, they come to him from the fatherly hand of God, there for God's glory and for his good. No, no, God is not condemning you, my friend, I should say to him. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus We're given a completely different view of life because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We can see now that he's for us and not against us. And so it is works, not grace. It is, it is, it is, it is law, not faith, that leads these, these Galatians into this wrong way of viewing things. But Paul the Apostle says, no, no, it's the cross, it's grace, it's faith, it's the work of the Spirit rather than self-righteousness. Now, I read a quote to you recently that I'm going to read to you again. It's from William Stockton, and I'm reading it because I think it's so incredible, and I wonder if you really got it when I read it. Uh, This is um, from Rushton's Defense of Particular Redemption. I'm going to read a couple of comments of Rushton as well. Uh, But here's what Owen Stockton says. I find that though in my judgment and profession I acknowledge Christ to be my righteousness and peace, Yet I have secretly gone about to establish my own righteousness and have derived my comfort and peace from my own acting. 
For when I have been disquieted by the actings of sin, not God speaking peace through the blood of Christ, but the intermission of temptation and the cessation of those sins have restored me to my former peace. When I have been troubled at the evil frame of my heart, not the righteousness of Christ, but my feelings of a better temper have been my consolation. I prayed against, resolved against sin, striven with sin, and avoided occasions of sin, all of which a natural man may do. But how to fetch power from the death of Christ, how to believe in God for the subduing of sin, and how to do it by the Spirit, have been mysteries to me. You see what remarkable, remarkable comment that is by that old Puritan? This old Puritan is saying, you know, I know that I'm saved by grace and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. And yet when I struggle with sin, I tend to fall back upon my own works in order to find peace. And friend, you can never find peace there. You will never find peace there. I don't care how sanctified you are. I don't care how holy you are. It doesn't matter how much you have progressed in your walk in grace. You will never find peace of conscience in what you do, but only can find peace of conscience in what Christ has done. And so Rushton goes on to say, In this state of bondage are many precious souls detained because they cannot see the absolute perfection of the work of Christ. They allow that Christ has done a great deal for sinners, but something they imagine must be done on our part to render His blood available and that something not being able to satisfy divine justice, and being too weak to purge their guilty conscience, they are disquieted. But when the soul is driven from every other refuge to trust in Christ alone, then it finds rest. It no more asks, what lack I yet? Knowing that the law is magnified, justice satisfied, and God the Father well pleased in His beloved Son, for we have believed and do enter into rest. Comfort ye, comfort my people, saith your God. Now, that leads me then to the third thing and our final point. The cross replaces moralism. The cross replaces moralism. Now, here what we're asking for this third point is what difference does all of this make in my Christian life? Uh, What difference does all of this make? We have two opposing perspectives, really only two, and a perspective into which sometimes the Christian also may fall. We have the perspective of law and works, and we have the perspective of the atonement, the cross, and of grace. These are the two perspectives out of which we must live. Law and works, flesh or faith, self or cross, And so, ultimately, the cross replaces moralism when we come to faith in Christ because there the issue is either bondage or freedom. There the issue, ultimately, is heaven or hell. Christ bore my hell for me, and he has freed me from bondage to the law. As I said this morning, God will have blood. It will either be your blood or it will be Christ's blood. Those who trust in Jesus Christ have been freed from their bondage, freed from the curse of the law. They have been freed from hell. They have been freed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there also is for the Christian this 
subjective sense of peace that can be replaced by an internal torment, a morbid introspection, not just a proper self-examination, but losing our, our sense of peace altogether when we have forgotten the cross of Christ. And then moralism replaces the cross. Listen to this quotation from the Belgic Confession of Faith, one of our old Reformation confessions. The Belgic Confession says, Our consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the sufferings and death of our Savior. Listen to it again. Our consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the sufferings and death of our Savior. Now that is precisely the, Paul that, the point that Paul is making and the point that I, as I preach Paul's epistle, am making to you tonight. Here it is. Follow the flesh and you will begin to think that what saves is the quality of your contrition, the quality of your piety, the quality of your obedience, maybe the quality of your prayer life. If you follow the flesh rather than the cross, you will forget the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and you will attempt to fall back on your own sufficiency. You will live on a pass-fail basis before God in your heart. And then you will expect others around you to live on a pass-fail basis as well. You will become curved in on yourself and to top it all off, you may be a miserable person with which to live. You get that? You understand it? You forget the cross. You forget grace. And you're not going to be a very gracious and loving and forgiving person. You remember the cross. You remember grace. You live by faith. You keep Christ crucified, placarded before your eyes and your gaze there. And then you know, I'm the chief of sinners. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to die for sinners of whom I am chief. And when your heart thinks, knows, and feels that, then you forgive your child, you forgive your parent, you forgive your spouse, and you begin to live a gracious, gracious, gracious life. Forget the cross, you live a miserable life introspective life. Remember the cross, and then when you see that person, rather than being irritated, you say, that is a person for whom Jesus gave his life. Oh, how I love that person, because I love Jesus who died for that person. And that's why we need to hear the gospel constantly, so that we keep both eyes fixed on Christ, not eyes fixed upon our own compunction, not upon our own works, not upon our own efforts, but both eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ. The cross really is sufficient, my friend. The cross abolishes human attainment and brings peace. Now, there was a, a friend of Martin Luther's. Uh, his conversion almost paralleled Luther's. His ministry paralleled Luther's life. I think he died seven weeks after Martin Luther died. He was a friend. He was a, a confidant. His name was Frederick Myconius. 
Myconius, before coming to faith in Christ, was in torment in his soul because he was relying upon his own works and his own efforts and his own supposed righteousness, even though the scriptures say we have none. He was, he was lost to the point of distraction. He didn't know what to do. Here came Tetzel. Tetzel selling indulgences. And he met Tetzel. And Tetzel says, look, you buy this indulgence and that will buy you so many years out of purgatory and your sins are going to be forgiven. The Pope guarantees it. Well, there also was a decree that Tetzel said, if you're incredibly poor and you just don't have any money, then the Pope says he'll give you an indulgence gratis. Ah, well, there's some hope, he thought. And so he came, Myconius came. He came, came to Tetzel and he says, you know, I don't have a penny. I don't have anything at all. And you said that the Pope guaranteed forgiveness of sins gratis if I just come because I don't have any money that you'll give to me gratis. And Tetzel said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a few coins, and then you have to give them back and purchase the indulgence with the coins that I give you. That's not gratis. That's not free. Myconius was so disturbed, he went back to his room. Do you know what he did? He fell upon his knees. He cried out to God, and he said, God, will you be my father? Will you forgive me for my sins for Jesus' sake? And do you know what happened? God did. No indulgences, no few pennies. You know, God helps those who help themselves is a thoroughly medieval concept. It is not biblical, not biblical at all. Not when it comes to these issues, my friend. He had nothing to offer, nothing but his own sinful soul. And he prayed and God forgave him. And Myconius said, I felt God change my heart. Well, I wonder, do we have a Myconius here tonight? Do we have someone that deep within your heart, your conscience is so disturbed and you are so distracted and you know that you need salvation and you don't know where to turn, you turn to Jesus. Go to your heavenly Father through Christ and say, save me for Jesus' sake and he will save you. He will save you for time. He will save you for eternity. Do something, you don't do anything. What we want to do is to kill doing. I'm talking about in this great matter of justification. We want to absolutely kill it. You do nothing. You add nothing. There is not one work that you perform. Jesus has been placarded before your eyes as crucified. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Through the preaching of the gospel, do you see him tonight? Do you see Jesus Christ as placarded before your eyes, the bleeding Savior in whom you put your trust for your salvation, for time and for eternity. May the Lord bless this preaching of his word.